I just want to share a few thoughts this morning about, I was, you know, as always, what I do is I just keep kind of one ear toward heaven and one ear toward earth and trying to sense what the scripture, the word, or the message for the class should be every Sunday. And um, I, don't, I don't think you can really miss it ever because as long as we talk about Jesus and, you know. <laughs> but I do like to fine tune, you know, and hear so that it's a message for the moment, you know, for the saints that come. And I've been thinking about um, just talking, just sharing a few thoughts about um, spiritual warfare and some thoughts I have about spiritual warfare because I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions about what that is. Um, the Apostle Paul spent a good third of his letter to the Ephesians on spiritual warfare. He first talked about who we are in Christ in the first part of Ephesians. In Ephesians, it's probably one of those, the deepest letters he ever wrote as far as the, it's very, very deep in terms of the unseen reality. That in Colossians, both Ephesians and Colossians are like, I would say, at the very top. Romans, of course, is, is comprehensive. But as far as just a nice fillet, just a nice medium rare fillet, not, not, a, not a big porterhouse, but a nice medium rare fillet, I would say Ephesians or Colossians. And Ephesians, the first half, the first third of Ephesians, he talks about who we are in Jesus and the unseen reality in Jesus. Second half, or second third, first third, second third of Ephesians, he talks about how this looks. What does it look like? How do we walk this out? How does the old man, the deeds of the old man being put off and the new deeds, the new man being manifested and how that actually happens? He talks in Ephesians about this dynamic of, of seeing Christ and, and being transformed in the renewal of the mind to be who we really are. That's, that's the second part of Ephesians. But the third part of Ephesians, he talks about how we're going to have opposition, we're going to have spiritual opposition, and that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, not with people, but with the powers behind the people, um, and talks about how, what should be the posture of a believer who encounters the darts of the enemy. And this is the thought I had by the Spirit for the class this morning, and that is that we're all getting a lot of darts. Do you feel since that too? We're getting a lot of darts. I don't know if you saw the movie Battleship, but no, not, not Battleship. It was uh, X-Men, X-Men, the last one they did. If you saw X-Men, um, I like movies, so I see all kinds of movies. But in X-Men, the last one, I forget the name of the movie, but they turned against the, what are the, the guys that were, they had special powers? Cause, the mutants, right, right. They turned against the mutants. See, Richard knows. They turned against the mutants, and, the, and all these battleships were sent these missiles to them, and they were on the beach, and it was the, the, they were going to wipe out the mutants, right? And so the mutants had, had these powers, and so all these missiles were coming in on them. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of missiles. And, and one, just one of the mutants had the power to just turn the missiles back in midair and turn back, you know. Um, but that's kind of like I feel like we've had, our, and as we are... In many ways, the point of the spear in this revelation and revolution of grace, the point of the spear, the first line of attack gets hit the hardest. So there's going to be a lot of missiles. And Paul says that the shield of faith is able to quench every single missile. The shield of faith. 
But there is a battle. And, and I think it's important to know that there is a battle because so you don't think you're strange or weird because you're having these darts come at you. Um, Peter says, think it not strange that this stuff is happening to you because this, this is a mark that you belong to him. And Jesus himself told the disciples, I tell you ahead of time, so you're not discouraged. I tell you ahead of time that some are going to, they're going to attack you and they're going to accuse you of things that are not true. They're going to do this because they know neither me nor my father. Um, some are going to pull you out of the synagogue and persecute you and stone you to death. I mean, he, he said, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time because this is a fallen world and there is evil. And I don't want you to think that this is unusual. This is very usual for, for, for a fallen world to resist the light, for the darkness to resist the light is normal. <laughs> so it's, and that helps a lot when you realize, wow, that, that is, that does help a lot because we're going to have darts. We're going to have things come at us, whether it's a health problem, a relationship problem, uh, whether it's a financial problem. Um, don't think that you're just persecuted, that you're not really being persecuted just because you're not being persecuted for preaching the gospel. In other words, some people think that real persecution is when I'm standing on the street corner and I'm preaching Jesus and they're throwing tomatoes at me. That, that's real persecution. No, persecution, the enemy is not after the enemy is not just going to attack us when we're on the street corner preaching Jesus. The enemy is attacking the sons and daughters of God. Yes. You as a person. He will try to attack your finances, your health, your relationships. He will put thoughts in your mind about somebody who they're not even thinking that. But you're thinking, why doesn't she like me? Why does this? And then it calls these problems, you know, and then you, all kinds of issues that he tries to stir up. In the body of Christ, and, ha- and tries to keep you from just having, keeping, keeping a peace about yourself and a rest. So, I want to share just a few thoughts because Paul says we should we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. At the same time, we don't focus on him obviously at all because he has lost all authority, all authority. And this is what's so cool about this, and this is what I'm really beginning to see more than ever before. I really have always thought that the last piece of the puzzle in my own life would be this thing about authority. And it's starting to really blossom inside of me as I begin to see more and more about the authority of Christ over the enemy. And, and, um, and if you think about, you can couple the coming of Christ into this world, you can couple it this way. His incarnation and his life, couple those two things together, the miracle of the incarnation and his life, which qualified him to be our sacrifice, our, our offering, the offering of God, the Lamb of God. Then you couple the death and the burial, the death and the burial, which is the end of the Adamic race, the blotting out of all flesh, and the burial of it is the, the final resting place of all flesh, the death and the burial. Then you have the resurrection and the ascension, the life the ascension, those coupled together. As he was raised from the dead, he told Mary, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. So the life and the resurrection, I mean the resurrection and the ascension go together. It was in the ascension that authority was given to the Son of God. It was in the ascension, as we see in the book of Daniel, there's a verse in Daniel where it says, and I saw the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. And he came before the Ancient of Days, and he was all authority was given to the Son of Man. This is a picture of Jesus himself, that all kingdoms would be subject to him. And his ascension is when he gave gifts unto men, the scripture says. He ascended on high and gave gifts unto men, because he, the gifts come with the authority. So he ascended 
in this, in the, in this exaltation, he, the Lord, the Father has given him a name above every name. That every knee should bow and every tongue confess. So he, got, he received all authority in the ascension as have, having finished his work. Then he comes back before he leaves for, the, for the, the, the big departure and says, Behold, all authority now has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, in my name. This is huge. It's really huge. This whole thing about the authority that you have in his name. He has given you the authority. He modeled it for us when the disciples were walking with him. It was a delegated authority, a power of attorney, because they had not yet been born again. But they saw the power of his name. And they were, uh, you know, as natural men with it, kind of, they they didn't know how to handle it. Uh, And the Lord says, don't rejoice that the the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So anyway, I just want to share a few thoughts about what I see about this authority issue and how it relates to spiritual warfare. And I think it's, it's really going to, and I think this will develop more in my mind as, as I ponder this, because I really believe this is the last piece. And when I say the last piece, I'm saying the fullness of this, the finished work of Christ. Because in this last piece of authority is power to preach with signs and wonders, to heal the sick, to bring forth the kingdom, the heavenly reality, as well as live in our own personal life in a power and a confidence in prayer and boldness that we've never had before, if that makes any sense. But it's a complete picture. It's like the whole thing. I've got a, we've got a kind of warm up here. I guess I've got the heater on. I guess we, should, we could open that door if you don't mind. Get some circulation. Just bear witness to your spirit. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Because... I tell you, this, the authority that Jesus has given his sons and daughters on earth, um, it's not like men, men suppose. It's not like, um, you know, those who seek power, those who have a love for power have missed it. It's, it's really like one, like one brother said, it's not the love for power, it's the power of love. He moved, the scripture says he moved with compassion and healed the sick. The authority flows from the compassion. The authority of Christ flows from your compassion. It's, it's, really, it's, it's, way, it's God's way of protecting his power from those who just seek power. So as you see the whole work of God, that's why this has to be the final piece. Because until you see the awesomeness of Christ and his death and resurrection, we're not ready for the ascended power, the authority. And he will. He will give us, as, as an awesome teacher, he teaches us and he leads us as a shepherd to this reality. We will begin to pray as he wanted us to pray. Ask the Father anything in my name and he shall do it. Ask him anything in my name and I will do it. There'll be a, a, a greater con- a, a confidence and a greater awareness when we see that the prince of this world has been judged. One of the main things the Holy Spirit has been sent to convince us of that the prince of this world has been judged and that he has lost all authority. Even though Hebrew says we do not yet see with our eyes all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet. Because there's a fallen world still and, there, and the, we know the world lies in the power of the wicked one. But his power is a power of deception. It's not legitimate power. It's not real authority. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. See, that's the key. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's like that. 
You know, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's like, it's like if, you, if you're deceived to think he's got power and authority, then you put that, you, put, you give him power yourself. But when you see behind the curtain, you realize, oh my gosh. As the scripture says, the day will come when at the end of all things, when we see Lucifer, we will say, is that the one? Isaiah says, we'll look at him and we'll say, is that the one that deceived the nations? Because he'll be stripped of all his smoke and mirrors and you'll see him as the, the lying angel that he is, the father of lies. It's awesome. And when you see this, there's a, a new boldness to speak in the Lord's name because he purchased by great suffering and price this authority that he might give it to his sons and daughters in his name. Lord, help us see these things. These are so awesome. Help us to discern spiritual things today, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our minds, that we might understand these things. Who can know these things but the Spirit of God? Lord, I pray that we would have a new understanding of the authority that you have in heaven and on earth. The same authority you give to us in your name, to do your work and to do your deeds. Lord, I pray that this revelation would grow in all of us and we would be so strong in the day of evil and stand, stand in the reality of another world, of our King, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Thank you, Father, for this reality. Thank you for the ring of authority as you gave to the prodigal son. Thank you for the ring. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, that is one of the things that just came to me as I was praying. That's one of the things that the father in the parable gave to the son who came back was a ring that was the authority of the family, of the father's family. And I think about that, the, the movie, The Lord of the Rings, you know, where the whole movie that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the book on The Lord of the Rings, who was also a believer, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were good friends, contemporaries. They, they wrote together and visited together. They saw these things. They saw these invisible realities, and they put them in book form so they could communicate it to the masses. I'm so glad somebody put them into a movie for this generation. But J.R.R. Tolkien saw that the, that the ring... The, uh, the battle is not won on the battlefield with strength, with, with swords and fight. But the ring, one ring to bring them all, one ring in darkness to bind them. One ring to bring them all, one ring in darkness to bind them. So if you could destroy the authority of the darkness, then you could destroy all the darkness. And that's what was so beautiful about the picture. You had a little weak Frodo a hobbit who has no strength and the humble hobbit who can take the ring and if the ring can be destroyed then on the battlefield they win it's very similar to what Jesus did it's like it's like when they took him in the garden he was crucified in weakness the scripture says but he lives by the power of god and when they came in the garden he was weak he appeared weak he said this is your hour in the power of darkness and he gave himself willingly over to darkness, the Scripture says that the Lord of this world had known the hidden mystery. He would they would not have taken him and crucified him because he had no idea what he was about to do. 
So in weakness and in humility, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a, pretty much like the weakness of Frodo. And in it, in it he destroyed the ring. He destroyed the, the center power of the enemy and that he had power over the sons of men and over this world because of the fall in the very beginning. So he released, and that's what he means by when Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. That's what it means when he says the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Many people teach that wrong. It's not talking about the gates of hell. It's talking about the gates of Hades, which was the, the place where all departed spirits went until the judgment. There will be a hell eventually where even Hades, the scripture says, Hades or Sheol shall give up her dead and they shall be, go into the lake of fire. But Hades was a place where everybody descended in the Greek called Hades, in the Hebrew called Sheol. But Jesus said there was a great gulf between the two regions of Hades or Sheol. And what Jesus meant when he said the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church, what he was saying was that against his called out ones, what he was saying is that he was going to descend to Hades and remove them and release them all, all his people that had been there, Abraham, Isaac. That's why it's called Abraham's bosom. That's where the thief went down. That, that day shall be with me in paradise. Paradise is a reference to Abraham's bosom there. He would release them all. And all those who would believe on him from that day forward would not have to ever enter Hades. For absent from the body is present with the Lord. So, and the gates of Hades refers to the authority of Hades. The gates. In the old days when they had the, the gates of the city were referred to as the authority. It's where the, the mayor and the kings would sit in the gates. So by him saying the gates of, the gates of Hades shall not prevail... He was saying that he would take all authority, release the people from below, and also open the heavens wide open so all who believe on him step over from this body, step over into the heavens. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It's so beautiful. It's like that's, that's what that really means. It's not, it, that's what he's saying with the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, and that's why in Revelation he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Because now even death has lost its sting for those who have believed. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Awesome. All right, let's, let's look at a few verses here. Let's look at Ephesians. I want to look at the last part of Paul's letter. You know, and I'll just say this. There's some people that, some people believe that there's not even a devil. You know, if you ever hear someone say that, you know, Satan's, Satan is just um, an imaginary thing or Satan doesn't exist or, you can know that that person has been deceived by the devil. Because, I mean, that's, um, if that's true, then Jesus was a lunatic. Because he fought with the devil in the wilderness as Satan tempted him. And Paul talked about how the enemy, Satan, can make his ministers appear as angels of light. And his ministers, ministers of righteousness, but they are from Satan himself. Paul himself said, Satan hindered me as he tried to preach the gospel. So, it's just a no-brainer to say that there's, there's a real devil. Um, so anyone who s- teaches or says that there's no Satan has already been deceived. And, is, is, it's like, and you know, in, a, lot, in, in a, big, large, a large way, I'll just say this as a quick footnote. Reformed theology or Calvinism in a lot of ways is almost, has almost, it, practically speaking, and the way they teach is almost, and practically speaking, there's really no devil um, in Reformed thinking. Of course, they would deny that, and, and I, know, I know they don't teach there's no devil. 
But practically speaking, when, when you teach that everything that happens is the will of God, you basically don't have a devil. They teach, Reformed theology and Calvinism teaches that everything that happens is the will of God. Everything that happens in this world is the will of God. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a war, whether it's you fall down the stairs, that was the will of God. That's Calvinism, that's Reformed theology. And basically by doing that, everything, God is the author of everything. There's no devil to resist. There's no Satan to be, to be aware of. There's, it's just, it's, it's pagan fatalism, basically. Pagan fatalism teaches that everything that happens is the will of God. It's Islam. Islam teaches that, the will of Allah. Everything that happens is the will of God. Pagan fatalism. And that's at the heart of Reformed theology and Calvinism. Jesus said that there would be wheat and there'd be tares. He didn't say they're all wheat. But he said, don't try to pull out the tares because you'll hurt the wheat. Um, the scripture says that in, in that same parable that, that the Son of Man sowed good seed, the wheat. But an enemy came behind him and sowed bad seed. An enemy. So there is an enemy that sows bad seed and it has an effect on the earth. Um, Jesus was very clear about this. So, not that Calvinism, Reformed theology, teaches that there's no devil. They obviously do teach that it's a real Satan. But practically speaking, their doctrine leads to the conclusion that everything is of God. So, um, it's just important that we realize there is a warfare. We do have an enemy. The apostles were very clear about that. Satan roams about as a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be, be aware of this. Be aware that you have an enemy. And don't feel like this, some, some strange thing is happening to you when you have darts being thrown at you. That's why we need each other to encourage each other in the faith and to remind each other of who we are in the Spirit. And we also need to, to um, realize this great authority that we have, this huge, huge authority we have in Christ. Okay, real quick here, let's look at Ephesians. Paul ends his letter about this spiritual warfare stuff. And I'll just say this about as we're turning to Ephesians, the last part of Ephesians. The big, the big weapon, the big weapon that we have is the gospel itself. That's the weapon. That, that is the weapon, the gospel. The, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. So the weapon or the We'll read in a minute, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the Word of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus and His finished work. If you don't have that right, and I've seen so many spiritual warfare teachings that didn't even understand the Gospel. And their spiritual warfare was bondage, because it was all focused on the devil. It was, all, it was, like, uh, it was like the devil and God were equals, and they were battling it out, you know, and it's like, it's just, and they became weird and obsessed with, you know, you got to destroy all the frogs in your house. And if you have a picture of, a, if you have a mushroom, you know, you got to destroy the mushroom. You know, st- stupid stuff. And you get that way, you get that kind of spiritual warfare because they don't know the gospel. And the first thing you got to do is understand the gospel, the good news. Because when you understand the gospel, how huge it is, how he has literally brought us through judgment and raised us again in him and joined us to himself that we've been made righteous and holy and blameless. When you see the reality of the gospel, the good news, as sons and daughters of God now, heirs of God with his authority, it changes, it, it makes void and obsolete a lot of the so-called spiritual warfare teaching that's out there. Because you're free. You're free. I mean, Paul said he could eat, Paul, 
ate meat offered to demons. He said, he said yeah, it's just meat. Eat it. Don't, don't ruin a good steak. He said, don't, don't, eat, don't eat the meat that's offered to demons if that's going to cause your brother to stumble who's weak in the faith. He says, yeah, I won't do it in, in front of Joe Smith over there because he thinks that there's something to this, you know, the meat's being offered to demons. So I won't eat it in front of him. But when Joe leaves, I'm going to eat that steak. <laughs> He's free. You're free. That's Paul, the Apostle Paul. You see? But all this spiritual warfare weirdness would say, oh, no, no, you can't eat that. Oh, that was, that was, worse. That was offered up in worship to demons. You can't eat that meat. You, if you eat that meat, demons will come inside of you. you know, all this stupid stuff. And Paul says, no, eat the meat. Don't ruin the good steak. Because he knew, he saw the unseen, the reality. When you see the gospel, it just, all this weirdness just drops off. Okay. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at um, verse 10. And we'll, I'll just do it real quick here. Verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is how he ends the letter. Finally, my brethren. Finally, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not in our own strength, but in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Notice we're not fighting. We're just standing. Because we are more than conquerors. We've already won. Jesus won it for us. That's why it's referred to as we being more than conquerors. Because a conqueror has to fight and win. We are more than conquerors or better than conquerors. The scripture says because another one fought for us and won. We simply stand in his victory. Awesome. Okay. Verse 14. Stand therefore. See again. It's just standing. Stand therefore having girded your, wa- your waist with truth. First thing he mentions is truth. Truth there, as we know, is the, is the unseen reality, the real. That's what held all the pieces of the armor together was the belt, the truth, to know the truth. That's what Jesus said. I came to bear witness to the truth, the real. So we know the real. We don't live in shadows of the law anymore, shadows and types of, of uh, religious exercises. But we live in the truth and the real. For the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit, in the real, in, and in the truth. We have actually been born again. We, have actually, we are actually no longer from below, but from above. We are actually the sons and daughters of God with His authority, His ring, His ring. So the truth is so important to see the truth. The truth is what makes us free, the Scripture says. First, let's see, verse um, 14, 14. Stand therefore, having girded your, your waist with truth. Next one, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He says, never forget your righteousness. It covers your heart. Never let the, the enemy say that you have an evil heart. It covers your heart. Remember, you are righteous in Christ. Your heart is righteous. The spirit is, is, a, is alive in you because of righteousness, Paul says. The body is dying because of sin. The, bo- the power of sin is still in our, in our mortal body. But you, as a, your new being, you as a real person, soul and spirit, are righteous in the eyes of God. By, not only by impu- imputation. This is something that's so cool. The old saints had imputed righteousness by, by simple faith. Okay? We have both imputed and imparted righteousness by a new creation. It's pretty awesome. We have something better than they had because they had imputed righteousness. That's why they didn't pass into the heavens when they died. They descended to Sheol. But you pass into the heavens because you are as righteous as he is by, new, by creation, by a new creation. Isn't that awesome? 
So we have not only imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness. How did we get imputed? Simply by faith, just like they did, by faith. But when we got this time the imputed righteousness, because of the mystery of Christ's resurrection, then God could create you and you and Him and join you to Himself. They didn't have that union. You have union. You have not only, not only imparted, but not only imputed, but imparted righteousness. You, you are not just fictionally righteous. You are righteous, as, as Clark says so well. It's not that we're just positionally or just judicially righteous. You are actually righteous. It's awesome. That's why we can be bold as a lion, because he's actually made it so. A new creation. Not of Adam anymore, but from the last Adam, from above. A new creation. Actually righteous. So the breastplate of righteousness is this awesome truth that he has made us righteous and we've been given a new heart as the prophets prophesied. Verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then this is talking about your shoes. Gospel of peace or the good news of peace has to do with um, walking in this peace in everyday life. In other words, live in this the sense that I stand in, in the peace, I have peace with God and the peace of God. It has to do with a, a sense of well-being, that you have peace, that God is not against you anymore. Because we stand in this grace, we have the peace, we have peace with God, Paul says, and the peace of God. So the, the feet, I think he puts the gospel of peace on the feet, so that, because we stumble, we all stumble in many ways, James says, we stumble with our feet. And our feet need washing every now and then by our brothers. You know, we need, we need forgiveness from, from our brothers. That's the feet washing thing. We'll talk about that one day, what that means. But God has already made us all clean, the scripture says, by his work. But in this world, we stumble sometimes. But keep that sense of peace, that you have peace with God no matter what happens. It's a very powerful weapon to have the shoes of the gospel on your feet. Because sometimes we all stumble in many ways, as James says. But we, are, we have peace with God, and we have the peace of God because of what Jesus did. He is the full armor. Okay, then, then you go, verse 16. Above all, above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield of faith. You could, have all, you could have none of the other armor. You could be a very immature believer and not understand your righteousness, not understand the truth, the reality. But if you, above all, if, you're, if you have just that shield of faith, if you lift that shield of faith, look what happens. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That shield of faith will quench all the fiery darts. What am I saying when I say shield of faith? I'm saying to believe that Jesus has truly taken away your judgment. That Jesus really took away your sin. That Jesus himself has given you his own righteousness. That transaction on the cross. That's the simplicity of that. To believe that he has taken away my sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He no longer counts my sin against me. For God was in Christ reconciling the whole world unto himself. Not counting their sins against them anymore. The shield of faith shall quench every fiery dart. And then he goes. 17. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation speaks of the mind. The word salvation speaks of being delivered from one realm to another realm, saved, delivered. The word salvation means being brought from one place to another place. So salvation, like Israel went from Egypt to the promised land. So the, the true meaning of salvation is being brought from one place to another place. So it's the mind being protected to remember that you are no longer from below but from above. 
that he, he went to prepare a place for you and he came back and brought us to that place by the gift of the Spirit so that we, that we might be where he is. That's the helmet of salvation, that we are always with him and he is always with us, seated with him in heavenly places and him walking the world with us. Below I am with you always, even until the end of the world. That's the salvation of the mind. That's the, the, the mind is strong in that reality. It's the anchor that goes beyond the veil that we know who we are and where we are and where he is in us, the mind. And then it says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the gospel we've just mentioned earlier. The Word of God, the Word, the message of Christ. Not the Bible in general. No, not the Bible in general. That's not the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is not the Bible in general. It's the revelation of Christ that's hidden in the Bible. Jesus said, you search these scriptures and you think that you have life in these scriptures. You think these scriptures, you Pharisees think that life is in these scriptures. But these scriptures speak of me. And you won't come to me that you might have life. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Word of God is Christ. It's the message of Christ that's hidden in all the Scriptures. That's the, that's the sword. You can't quote Leviticus about sacrifices and have any power. But you can certainly take the sacrifices that are in Leviticus and say, this is Christ, and He has done it all. That's the power. You see? Awesome. Okay. And then he goes, verse 18. And a lot of people forget this part of the armor, verse 18, because they feel like, because it's not really a piece that goes on the body. But verse 18 is so powerful. It's, It's about prayer. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In other words, pray for each other and pray, and for me, pray for me, Paul says, pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He was in prison when he wrote this. Isn't that awesome? So the final piece is to pray with this authority, to pray with this authority for each other. The apostles said, pray for me. All the, the leaders of our church, we should pray for each other. It's a, it's a, a posture of humility and prayer and with the authority of, of Christ that we might stand in the evil day. Because the evil day is, comes to all of us from time to time. The, enemies, the scripture says the enemy came and tempted Jesus intensely in the, in the wilderness. And then he left him for a season. We will have seasons of intense evil come at you. Then it will leave. And it will teach us how to, to, re, how to resist and how to stand firm in who we are in Jesus. The scripture says in James... Submit yourself unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We, we forget the first part, submit yourself to God. In the Hebrew, I mean in the uh, Greek, it actually means, in the Greek, it actually means come under his wings. In other words, David said, I will run to God my tower. You don't fight the enemy face to face. You run to God. That's how you, the way you resist the enemy is you run, a, run to God. So James says, run under my wings, come unto my wings. And that is the act of resistance of the enemy. You don't fight the devil toe to toe. The scripture says in Jude, not even Michael railed against Lucifer. Not even Michael rebuked Satan. Not even Michael rebuked Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. See, book of Job. So the way you, the way you put all this in action is that you run to God. God is our strong tower. Come under my wings. James says, come under the wings of God. Come under the shadow of the Almighty. And in doing that, he shall flee from you because he can't follow you, in, follow you into his presence, so to speak. It's awesome. He made this arrest. He made this from beginning to end. We don't fight a battle to win. We stand in a battle that's already been won. And when the enemy comes, when we have those evil days, when the darts are really flying, we run into his arms. We come under his wings and watch what God will do as we just abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So cool. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see this. There's so much more that can be said about your authority. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see more and more
about this awesome last piece of the puzzle, how you ascended on high and gave us your own authority that we might proclaim this awesome good news with signs and wonders and with the power of God. For the gospel is not in word only, but in power. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Amen.